This is Michelle. Welcome back to Not Your Mana. Um, okay, full disclosure. I have been recording little nuggets of thoughts for my church every week, and I have quite a pile of them. But then I've gotten kind of paranoid and I'm like, oh, some of these things are things I've said before in my podcast and people who actually have faithfully listened to this far will not want to hear them anymore. But then there's other things too. And then, but they're all connected to the sermon. And then I worry that I'm like, if you haven't heard the sermon, will they still make sense? And so then I've just gotten overwhelmed. And then I have not been faithful to put out there what the Lord is putting in my heart. So I just decided to compile all of the thoughts that I have been putting on this other venue and I'm just going to put them here for you in case they would be a blessing to you. I just want to be faithful to share what's inside of me and not be paranoid about having it all buttoned up and perfect. So here you go. Let's get into it. It's all from the first few chapters of Acts. Here we go. This is Michelle, and I have a couple thoughts for you out of Acts. This is Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So something, something about the name. It also is said in uh, in Acts 3, you know, when Peter and John are going to the temple, and they say to the to the beggar, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. Um, what is that about? There's something really powerful about the name of Jesus. And um, I was just thinking, like, when in my life do I use that phrase the most, the name of Jesus? Well, it is obviously at the end of every prayer I pray. At the end of every prayer, there's, it's like the signal that the prayer is ending. It's like, and in the name of Jesus, Amen. Um, which like we are supposed to pray in the name of Jesus, but I also wonder, is it like meant to be maybe thicker and deeper and more reverent than that? Like when I say that, do I realize the power of the name that I am invoking? Do I understand what I am saying? I think there's something happening with the apostles in Acts where they are so aware of this Jesus who died and was resurrected from the dead, like the power and the authority of that name is something that they are intimately aware of at the moment. And I wonder, I'm like, how intimately aware of that am I right now? Um, I think about it, Exodus, you know, 20, when the the, the Ten Commandments are given, it says, this is Exodus 27, it says this, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Um, Well, so, and I think that that's just a whole lot more than a cuss word. Like, and I think sometimes we go like, well, I won't misuse the name of the Lord. Is that when I hit my finger with a hammer, I will not say God's name. Um, I don't think, I think it doesn't mean that. I think it means a whole lot more than that. Like, does that have anything to do with like when we flippantly use his name or when we use his name without the proper reference, reverence? Um, and I just think that there's something about the acknowledgement of the character 
of God in the midst of his name. Like it's not like if, if someone dishonors my name, it's not that they just like, you know, say my name when they stub their toe. It's that they would dishonor my name, that they would say, oh, you know, Michelle, she blah, 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 blah. And they, they smash my name and my character and my reputation, that that's what that means. And I'm like, how, how am I living in such a way that I am honoring the name of Jesus? And I think that that is probably a bigger deal than I think it is. Um, this is another little thought out of, this is John 12, 28. And it's in the middle of um, Jesus is talking and the father says something. So I know that we twice know that Jesus says, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased that we hear the father say that to Jesus twice. And this is the third time we hear the father speaking in the gospels. And we don't often say this. And I just think it's a little interesting. So starting in verse 27, Jesus is talking and he says, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven came. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Hmm. When he says, Father, glorify your name. There's a voice from heaven that says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Interestingly, the crowd that was there and heard it said that they that maybe it had thunders, thundered. And also others said that maybe an angel had spoken. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit and not mine. But anyway, I just wanted to like just zero in on that thought for a second. Like that the father is about glorifying his name, that he will glorify his name again. And if Jesus prayed the prayer, Father, glorify your name. Am I praying the prayer, Father, glorify your name? And I um, I just finished reading the book by John Mark Comer called God Has a Name. And he unpacks um, Exodus 34, 6, where Moses is at Sinai and God decides to proclaim his name in front of him. And he, I'll read it to you. He says... Um, starting in verse five, 34, five, then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord, which would have been the name Yahweh. And then he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. And it goes on. Um, but John Mark does this amazing job of kind of unpacking the name of God. And then it's a whole lot more than a name. Like, what do you call God? It's about his character. It's that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in love, that he's compassionate and gracious. And what, what does it look like to actually hold his name in the context of, with reverence for who he is, for his character, for his reputation. And then do we glorify the name of God, not by just saying glory to your name or in the name of Jesus, amen, but do we honor the name of God by how we know and respect and honor his character and who he is and worshiping him for who he is and then trying to live out as a reflection of who he is in the world? Is that what it means to glorify his name? And then how are we in places 
guilty of breaking that Ten Commandment, of misusing the name of the Lord our God and dishonoring the name of the Lord our God by not honoring his character and who he says he is. So this is, you know, maybe a half-baked thought, and um, but it's kind of what's wandering around in me just about like what does it mean to really honor honor the name of God, to, to honor the name of Jesus, to um, not misuse his name. And so um, I think that there's more there than we probably think about at first glance. So just wanted to stir the pot in you that's maybe stirring in me. So let's pray. God, will you help us? Help us to sort through that, to figure out how to do that. Um, Lord, would you give us revelation about your name and the power and the authority and the strength of your name and the honor that it is due. Lord, if there's any places in me where I misuse your name, where I don't hold it in the right respect and um, reverence, where I might use it flippantly, God, I pray that you would edit me, that you would help me. In the name of Jesus, help me. I beseech you to, to teach me what it means to truly glorify your name. Amen. Hey, this is Michelle with a couple more thoughts for you. And um, I was thinking about how Matt was talking about salvation and there's what we are saved from, but there's also what we are saved for. And what does it look like to live a life that is full of the holiness and the joy and the continual salvation of the Lord? What does it look like to live that life out and... um I was it what he said that day it made me think about the disciple Thomas because I think we think of Thomas and as soon as I said that we all thought it doubting Thomas oh yeah he's the doubter he's the one that after Jesus rose he he needed to you know put his finger in his in his hands and his scars and and then he only would he believe and and so he's such a doubter right? And I think that's what we think of him. And I'm thinking about like, what does salvation look like in Thomas's life? Um, what was it like for Thomas to walk with Jesus? Um, because he was one of the 12 disciples and his story is a lot more complicated than that one moment. And um, even like talking about like loving people in slices, I'm like, is that the only slice of Thomas that we think about? I think that is the only slice of Thomas that is like commonly known. That's all we really talk about about him is that he's a doubter. Um, he does believe really deeply when he sees when he sees Jesus, um, you know, because Jesus is gracious and he comes to him. So this is John twenty, and it says this. Well, I'll just read it to you. So the other disciples told Thomas, "We've seen the Lord." But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. <laughs> and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and believe, and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed the blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And I think we can like, I mean, we can wonder like, is Jesus scolding him? Like, 
put your finger here. Now stop doubting and believe. Or is he going like, is it gracious? Like he, he leaves the whole thing with peace be with you. And if he's like, Thomas, put your finger here. Kind of like I heard your request. Here I am. But in Thomas's explanation of my Lord and my God, I just love that. I don't even think Thomas actually touched him. I just think he had this beautiful explanation of the Lord, my King. And what happened to Thomas because of that? Like after that encounter with the living resurrected Jesus, like what was he saved for? What happened to Thomas? Well, one of the things is, is tradition would tell us that Thomas is the person who took the gospel the furthest. Thomas allegedly took the gospel all the way to India. Like if you go to India, there's lots of churches dedicated to St. Thomas because apparently that is where Thomas went. So he was really dedicated and left left the Middle East and left that area of the world and went really far. And I think maybe because it wasn't written um, or maybe Thomas wasn't a writer, maybe we don't, you know, people don't know that, but I'm like, what, what was Thomas saved for? Maybe to bring the gospel to the far reaches of the known world. So I love that. Um, maybe there's more to Thomas than doubting Thomas. Maybe there's some more slices. And here's another little Thomas slice for you. So this is John eleven sixteen. 16. Um, it's, well, it's when Jesus decides to go to go back to Jerusalem because Lazarus has died. And so he's like, hey, okay, we're going to go back there. But um, the disciples are like, uh, if you go there, they're going to kill you. And Hey, this is Michelle with a couple more thoughts for you. And um, I was thinking about how Matt was talking about salvation. And there's what we are saved from, but there's also what we are saved for. And what does it look like to live a life that is full of the holiness and the joy and the continual salvation of the Lord? What does it look like to live that life out and... um I was it what he said that day it made me think about the disciple Thomas because I think we think of Thomas and as soon as I said that we all thought it doubting Thomas oh yeah he's the doubter he's the one that after Jesus rose he he needed to you know put his finger in his in his hands and his scars and and then he only would he believe and and so he's such a doubter right? And I think that's what we think of him. And I'm thinking about like, what does salvation look like in Thomas's life? Um, what was it like for Thomas to walk with Jesus? Um, because he was one of the 12 disciples and his story is a lot more complicated than that one moment. And um, even like talking about like loving people in slices, I'm like, is that the only slice of Thomas that we think about? I think that is the only slice of Thomas that is like commonly known. That's all we really talk about about him is that he's a doubter. Um, he does believe really deeply when he sees when he sees Jesus, um, you know, because Jesus is gracious and he comes to him. So this is John twenty, 
And it says this. Well, I'll just read it to you. So the other disciples told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. (laughs) And he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. The blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And I think we can like, I mean, we can wonder, like, is Jesus scolding him? Like, put your finger here. Now stop doubting and believe. Or is he going like, is it gracious? Like, he he leaves the whole thing with peace be with you. And if he's like, Thomas, put your finger here. Kind of like, I heard your request. Here I am. But in Thomas's explanation of my Lord and my God, I just love that. I don't even think Thomas actually touched him. I just think he had this beautiful explanation of the Lord, my King. And what happened to Thomas because of that? Like after that encounter with the living resurrected Jesus, like what was he saved for? What happened to Thomas? Well, one of the things is, is tradition would tell us that Thomas is the person who took the gospel the furthest. Thomas allegedly took the gospel all the way to India Like if you go to India, there's lots of churches dedicated to St. Thomas because apparently that is where Thomas went. So he was really dedicated and left left the Middle East and left that area of the world and went really far. And I think maybe because it wasn't written um, or maybe Thomas wasn't a writer, maybe we don't, you know, people don't know that. But I'm like, what, what was Thomas saved for? maybe to bring the gospel to the far reaches of the known world. So I love that. Um, Maybe there's more to Thomas than doubting Thomas. Maybe there's some more slices. And here's another little Thomas slice for you. So this is John 11, 16. So it happens in the context of which Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick. So Mary and Martha had sent word to him that he's sick. So then Jesus stays where he is two more days, which is sort of interesting. And then this is John eleven seven. So then he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you and yet you're going back there. And so then basically Jesus says, yep, we're going to go. And if you hop to the end of that little chunk in verse 16, Thomas's response to Jesus wanting to go back to Jerusalem, though he might die, is this. Verse 16, then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Isn't that so interesting that here's doubting Thomas who gets such a bad rap, but in the moment where they go like, uh, Jesus, if you go back to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. And he goes, Thomas's response is, let's go. And if we die with him, we die with him. Like that is what it means to follow your rabbi. He says, let us also go that we may die with him. Cause there's almost like, gosh, if he dies, I'm dying too. Like I will go wherever you go. Like that kind of dedication and faithfulness, man, I'm like, I don't think that that's what we talk about when we talk about Thomas. Um, and then if that's who Thomas was, 
And then, of course, there's the whole doubting, you know, finger in his side business. And then if he takes the gospel so far, when you think like, what did salvation do to Thomas? When he had that kind of dedication and that kind of love. And that he just was, I love his declaration of like, my Lord and my God, that he just is like, there's such a powerful surrender in Thomas. I love what Thomas was saved for. Maybe he was saved from his doubts and his fear. And he was saved for such courage, like to walk the gospel so far because you are so in love with this God that you would follow him anywhere. I love that. I would have, I'm excited for the day when I get to meet Thomas and hear the stories of what the Holy Spirit did in and through him. Because my guess is it's a whole lot more than just all the doubts. So let's pray about that. God, would you help us to understand the complexity of which um, other people are saved from and for? And Lord, help us to understand that complexity in us. Lord, would you personalize our salvation in our story? Lord, what are you calling us to And um, God, thanks for the example of Thomas, that he is someone who walked with really interesting faithfulness. Lord, I want to be someone who follows you with that kind of faithfulness. So God, will you change me? Will you work in me? In the name of Jesus, amen. This is Michelle, and I have a couple thoughts for you out of the sermon from this past week. This is a verse that Paul kind of just flew by really quick, and it just hit me. It had so many interesting things in it, and I just wanted to unpack it a little bit. So it's Acts 4.36. It's a little bit of a tongue twister, so here we go. Um, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So just this little little two verses, and then it goes into the story of Ananias and Sapphira who do something similar but withhold part of the money, and um, it doesn't go real well for them. But it's just this this little thing about Joseph, and he struck me. I'll read it again in case you are listening to me and not looking at your Bible. It says, Joseph, comma, a Levite from Cyprus, comma, whom the apostles called Barnabas, parenthesis, which means son of encouragement, and parenthesis, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So just, you know, just this little mini, little mini nugget of, you know, I don't know, historical fact. A couple things strike me. One is, is that his name was Joseph and the apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. I just wonder why they called him that. You know, I don't know. Maybe someone else was running around named Joseph, so they had to come up with a different nickname for this guy. But I just am like, I love that the apostles called him son of encouragement. That's beautiful. That says something about him. That this guy named Joseph, they go, you know who he is. He is a man of encouragement. That's who he is. He brings encouragement wherever he goes. Um, 
And I, I just think that that's interesting. And and what is a what would the apostles call us? What would the people of God call us if they were to give us a different name? The son of what? So that just made me kind of think and think about my character and think about my life and what is it that other people would say is true of me? Like if they were going to give me a spiritual nickname, what would that nickname be? Which I think is just what son of encouragement feels like to me. It just feels kind of like a little spiritual nickname. So um, anyway, that was interesting to me. The other thing that's interesting to me is, is this guy Joseph is a Levite. And he sold a field that he owned and brought the money. Now, I don't know if you remember this story, but um, there's the 12 tribes of Israel and the Levites don't get any land. All the 11 tribes when, you know, post Exodus, when um, the nation of Israel gets rescued from Pharaoh out of Egypt, they spend 40 years in the desert and then they end up at the promised land. All of the different tribes get a chunk of land except for the Levites. The Levites don't get any land. They have to live off of the generosity of the other tribes. And it's super interesting because they don't have their own land. So it just struck me when we were reading this as Joseph, the Levite sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and gave it to the disciples. Um, the way that Levites got money, got places to live is, is that the different tribes would give places to live to the Levites. They had to depend on the generosity and faithfulness of others. And then also the people would have to, they would bring the first fruits of their crops and such to the Levites. And that's what the Levites would live on because they didn't have their own land and space and animals and all the things because their job was to be ministers in the name of the Lord. And so any land that they had was not theirs as Levites, but as an inheritance from another tribe. Then another tribe had given them a place and said, hey, you Levite, come and live here in our town, in our place. We're going to give you land. We're going to give you a home. We're going to give you a place to be. And you could be the minister in the name of the Lord here. And so the Levites were just way more in touch with what it means to live at the mercy and generosity of other people than probably the rest of the tribes were. And that just struck me when I read that. I was like, this Levite sold a field that had been given to him. He didn't inherit this. He couldn't have. He had to have been given it or his family had to have been given it at some point because you have to live off of the generosity of others. And so this Levite sold a field and brought the money. And I I love that because I feel like this son of encouragement, this Joseph, this Levite, knew what it meant to be generous and what happens when other people are generous to you and that that generosity is actually meant to be given away in the name of the kingdom. And um, I just, I love that he had turned around and sold it and given it. And there's something about the way that Joseph did it right like that he sold the field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the disciples' feet. And then Ananias and Sapphira do it in the next verse and it and they don't do it right. Sounds like they withheld some of the money and pretended that they didn't. And so um, there's something that Joseph the Levite, the son of encouragement, knew and 
was lived in and I feel like was even named for that he really understood really deeply in his soul as a Levite who lived as a recipient of generosity that he was quick to also live out of generosity and give that away. So I just think that was a really cool picture of him being super generous in the early church and giving away what he had. Um, Gosh, it reminds me of like Peter and John even when they go to that crippled beggar and they say, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. And then he would Jesus Christ stand up and walk. I'm like, was that the like, just like the feeling of the early church that it's like, huh, I don't have much, but what I have I give. And I'm like, that feels like what this Joseph did. He's like, I don't have a ton, but what I have I give in the name of Jesus. Oh, what would be happen? What would happen in the kingdom of God if we lived that way, huh? Hmm. Joseph, Barnabas, son of encouragement, giver of what the Lord has given to him. He just gave it away. Oh, may we be people like that. Amen. Amen. This is Michelle. Um, on Sunday, Paul in his sermon talked about the balance between the justice of God and the mercy of God, and, and basically how immense the mercy of God is in the balance between justice and mercy. Um, and he swung by this verse. It's out of Psalm 103.10, and it says that he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. So that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, that he, that out of his great love, that he, he treats us with this immense amount of mercy. And, um, I just, that, that line that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve just was running around in my head. And I actually just wanted to tell you a story because I think sometimes we remember things in the context of story better than we remember it when we just say it. So um, I want to tell you the story that I think of when I hear that verse. So um, when my oldest boy now, who's now 17, but when he was little, he was probably like three, like little bitty thing. And he used to watch he loved the videos, a Lou Giglio video from whenever, 20 years ago. And it was about the planets and how huge the solar system is and how little we are in comparison and how big God's love is. And then he spun it into this beautiful gospel presentation that would make all of us weep. But anyway, maybe you saw it. Um, but anyway, in the middle of that, he talks, one of the things he says is that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, that he acts toward us with this immense mercy. And well, Noah, when he was little, that's just what he, he always was like, can I watch the movie with the stars? And so he'd watch this like presentation of, you know, he, this preacher just telling about the stars and the universe and some sciencey stuff and, and then this beautiful gospel. And so he would watch it over and over. And I was like, great. I mean, you could watch a lot of Thomas the Train or, or you can watch that either. It's just so fantastic. Um, he also loved to watch, <laughs> he also loved to watch a video of, <laughs> of Paul's surgery. He Paul had this like soul, shoulder surgery and um <laughs> he also loved to watch that which was, you know, and this that's that's a whole other story. <laughs> but anyways, no. Always watch the Luke Giglio thing. 
So one day he just watched it and then he was up in our bedroom and I think I was like folding laundry and he was like sitting on the bed and we had this huge window above our bed that like slid like from the left to the right, just like this huge panel slid over on top of the other panel. So then it was just a screen, right? And Noah, like he's, he's kind of up in the window and he's yelling out the window, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. And then all of a sudden, someone outside, who I don't know who it was still, yells, what? And he goes, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. He treats us so much better. And she was like, oh, good. Thank you. He's like, you're welcome. <laughs> and I always just think of my little blonde haired boy yelling, God does not treat us as our sins deserve out the window which probably grammatically didn't even make any sense to him, but sure made sense to me. And then um, this is the deleted scene that I don't like to talk about, but I'm going to tell you. is So he's like kind of leaning against the window when he's doing this. And what happens is, is he had his head like against the screen. And in the right after this all happened, he finished yelling out the window and then it popped the screen out. And the screen came loose and he like kind of like lunged forward because he was leaning off of it and then like caught his balance and pulled back and did not fall out of our second story window. And after I grabbed him and closed the window and wept and cried and did all the things you do as a mother and told him, you know, maybe we shouldn't do that anymore. Um, And then later we screwed the screens on in a different way. But in that moment, I thought, God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He is so merciful. Like he was so merciful to my son right then. Like he so easily could have just toppled out of the second story window and down onto our deck and died. And instead, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. He is so merciful and kind. And in that moment, God in his mercy sent his angels to catch my son and push him back in, I believe. So God does not treat us as our sins deserve. He is so kind. Amen. Amen. Hey, this is Michelle. And I had a couple of thoughts this morning about justice. Um, We've been talking this week kind of about the balance in God's character between mercy and justice. And this morning I found myself praying for the Lord's justice. Um, I had a, I know somebody who had gotten scammed and some evil people took advantage. And as it kind of came into the light, I just found myself this morning, like praying for the Lord's justice. Like, God, this isn't okay. And will you make this right? And will you call the evil to account? And, um, I just, my heart was just troubled and I was crying out for justice. And I I think that that's what happens in the world. Like, you know, when you, when you see evil abounding, that you cry out for justice. And I think we cry for justice as humans, but I think in my prayer life, I also cry for justice. I'm like, Lord, like do something about this. And, um, you know, I think I want justice for evil people out there. And then I also want mercy for me. So obviously there's a little juxtaposition in there. But um, as I was praying for justice this morning, I found myself reading in Habakkuk. I don't know how much time you all spend reading in Habakkuk, but it's a really interesting passage. And it's mostly about the Lord's justice. It's how um, 
the nation of Israel had gone astray and had um, broken their covenant with the Lord. And then where God is going to send the Babylonians to conquer the people to administer his justice. And um, like this is Habakkuk 1. 12, it says, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish. And that that he was using the Babylonians to bring judgment. And the prophecy that Habakkuk is meant to proclaim is, is that in his days that he would watch this happen. And um, one of my favorite verses is Habakkuk 1.5. And it says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. And I like thinking about that in the positive sense. Like if God told me what he was going to do, it is so wild that I would not believe it. Like that is how amazing God's plans are. Um, I like the positive spin on that. But there's also like a judgment spit on that. And that's the context in which it said is that he says, look and watch and be utterly amazed for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told that the hand of the Lord was going to move in judgment over the nation. And that that is a, that's a crazy thing to think about. And I think he is like floored because like, gosh, this is going to happen. Um, but then it says that it's, it's in chapter three. Um, and this is Habakkuk's prayer back to God when he kind of realizes what's going to happen. And he says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in our day, in our time, make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. And I, I, you know, I feel like that is him crying on the heart and the character of God. He's like, yes, you're going to fall in judgment and I hear you. And there's an appropriateness to that. Um, and in wrath, remember mercy. He goes, you know who you are and that there is a balance in that. And, you know, I don't think we need to beg God to be who he is because maybe we just need to pay attention to, to who he is and what he says will stand. Um, and then right at the end of chapter three, which is kind of the closing out of the book, verse 17, it says this, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines. This is Bible for, you know, things aren't going very well. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The Savior Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer and he enables me to walk on the heights. That is in this context that that said, isn't that so interesting that in the midst of things being really hard, that he says like, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my savior. And he makes me, he makes me able to walk on the heights. Like he makes my feet like the feet of the deer in the midst of judgment, in the midst of things going really poorly. Um, one other thing I just wanted to add is when he's talking about the Babylonians, he talks, he refers to them in, in verse 111, he calls them guilty men whose own strength is their God. And that just gets me. I'm like, you know, he says, he says all of these crazy things about how there's, how strong they are and what their horses are like and all this stuff. And then he calls them guilty men whose own strength is their God. 
Oh, and I go, I just, Lord, I don't want to be that kind of person that where my own strength is my God, that what I trust in, where I hide, where my refuge is, is in my own strength. I don't want to be like that. I want to be someone who goes, the verse 19 is the sovereign Lord is my strength. Right at the, he, he, he reorients and he says, this is what the Babylonians are like. Their own strength is their God. And then he says, the Lord is my strength. He is the one I will rejoice in and the one I will trust in. He is our only strength. He is our only refuge. He is the only one who will enable us to walk on the heights in the midst of things going very poorly. So God, would you teach us to be those kind of people to trust you in the midst of things being really hard and messy? Lord, we ask you for your justice. And we ask you for your mercy and we pray that you would balance both. And I'm so thankful that you are God and that I am not. And I thank you that you are the wise one that we can trust. And God, I pray that you would give us wisdom, how to be people who actually trust in you in a world that is really messy. Holy Spirit, would you show us how? Would you show us the way through? And Lord, in your wrath, would you remember mercy? Would you help us to know your character, to trust your character? And Lord, the, no matter what, help me to rejoice in the Lord, to be joyful in the God, my Savior. You are my strength. I will trust in you. Help us. Amen. Hey, this is Michelle. I have a couple of thoughts for you today out of um, Matt's sermon that came mostly out of Acts 2.42. He was talking about um, this verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Um, he talked about this idea of common unity. What does it look like to have really, is, is that what community really is, is common unity? Um, he has some really good questions that I think are worth thinking about. One is, what is the best community that you've ever been a part of? Like, I think I want to ask a lot of people I know that this week. Like, what is the best community you've ever been a part of? And like, what are the, what were the marks of it? Like, what what is what makes up a really great community? And was it a spiritual community? Or was it like a really great soccer team or something? Um, I'm just really curious. I'm curious about that and what that looks like in our modern world. Um, another question he asked is, what does Holy Spirit-infused community look like? Oh, such a good question. What does Holy Spirit-infused community look like? And have you ever been a part of a community like that? Um, I have, and... I mean, I could talk for three hours. Lucky for you, they don't give me that much airtime. <laughs> but, oh my gosh, like when you are a part of a Holy Spirit-infused community in that you are a part of a people who are seeking desperately to follow the Holy Spirit, who are really busy setting their sails to catch any wind that the Holy Spirit might throw at them. Um, and then you end up in some crazy places doing crazy things just like because the Holy Spirit leads in beautiful and often unexpected ways. Um, so have you ever been a part of a Holy Spirit-infused community? And what does that look like? Um, I just think that that's a really interesting thing to think about. I want to pull on that for just a second. This is Acts 4.12. And it's a similar idea. 
Um, but go with me. Acts 4, 12. The apostle perform, apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Wow, did you catch that? There are some crazy things happening. And I think Matt did a good job. He said that this is the honeymoon of the church and not necessarily the marriage. But we are definitely in a really amazing honeymoon phase. And what is happening with the church that is acting in complete unity and the Holy Spirit is just so powerful. Um, I want to pop back a minute to Acts 4.32. They said all of the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions as his own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them. Okay. I just want to just reemphasize this idea of what is happening in the way that they are in complete unity as a body that they are, it says all of the believers were one in heart and mind. Um, if you've been listening to these little devos I've been doing, I've talked about this before, but they are contending as one man for the faith of the gospel and much grace was upon them. So then I just wonder, is it this crazy common unity among them? The way that they're living in such generous surrender to each other, and the way that they're taking care of the need, they says that there was no needy among them, that people were so generously giving and living so open-handedly. And this is, you know, where people are selling their lands and giving them and stuff. And then there's this crazy, miraculous signs and wonders that happen. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. I mean, so much so that people were just laying their sick on the street so that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. I mean, what kind of anointing must have been happening in order for the Holy Spirit to even be using the shadow of the Apostle Peter to heal people? And I just wanted to underline this. So crowds gathered from all of the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and theirs tormented by the evil spirits, and all of them were healed. I just want to underline that word all. Because I feel like in my experience currently, I go like, not everybody I pray to be healed is healed. But for some reason, at this particular era of the church, I don't know if that's a bad translation or not. But that is really interesting that everybody who was brought, all of them were healed. And I wonder if it had to do with the unity with which they were living in. Is something about that unity and that kind of surrender to the Holy Spirit in conjunction, is that what causes a powerful release of the Holy Spirit amongst the people? Is that what releases miracles and healing and wonders? Is it? Is it? Could it be? I don't know. I'm not God, 
I can't claim to know such things. I'm just looking at the scriptures and wondering when all of the believers are one in heart and mind and they're just following the Holy Spirit in really radical ways. And when the Holy Spirit says to go, they're going and they're living and supporting one another. And then they're in this, like all of them are healed era. And I'm like, it's interesting where it says like the people are gathering from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick. Like it reminds me of like the four friends who carry the guy in his mat and then like rip their roof off and drop the paralyzed guy down in front of Jesus. You guys remember that story? Like, you know, the four friends, like I'm just feeling like everybody has caught that memo. And like from all of the towns all around Jerusalem, people are like, pack him up. We're going. And like, everybody's carrying all of the stretchers. It's like all of the sick are coming. I just, I just wonder about the power of the move of the Holy Spirit right here in this era. And is that what makes a walk with God feel like this honeymoon phase because of the crazy unity and the crazy surrender to the Holy Spirit? Is he able to move amongst them and unleash something that is unprecedented and maybe not? And then like, how often is this repeatable? You know, is, is this the kind of thing that you've ever seen? Have you ever been a part of a community like this where you see the move and the power of the Holy Spirit like this? Um, you know, I'm glad that I am not God and I'm not the one who decides who gets healed and who doesn't and how that all works. And I want to be really humbly surrendered to him and his lordship and his sovereignty. I'm just really curious about the scriptures here. And I can't dismiss it and go, well, that's just, you know, I just go like, God, is there something we're supposed to be aiming for or hungering for here amongst the unity, the way they're taking care of the poor and the widows in their midst, the way that they are, that there's no one in need among them, that they're living in one heart and one mind and radically following the Holy Spirit. And then that word all gets dropped. I don't know. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you give us wisdom to know what it would look like to live in this common unity, to live in such a full expression of community the way that you would have it, Holy Spirit, that you would be able to move amongst us in unprecedented ways. God, would you help us? Would you help us to learn from you and to follow you and to trust you? God, teach us. And Lord, I pray that your scripture would come to life. And I pray that in the midst of our communities, that we would experience a surrender into your presence and into your ways like never before. Holy Spirit, lead us. And may we see a powerful, just distinctive move of your hand amongst us. Holy Spirit, come. Amen. Hey, this is Michelle with another thought for you. Um, In our discussion after service, Matt said something that really struck me. He said that everybody wants to change the world, but no one wants to change themselves. I just think that that's really true. I think especially in this particular season of the world that we are living in, in 2021. Everyone wants to change the world, but no one wants to change themselves. Um, and we're really good at pointing fingers at all of the things that are wrong in the world. And, um, you know, I think social media is just full of that. 
right now? And how much are we being a people in this era who are being really introspective about way the way that we live and the way that we show up in the world? You know, like how, how much do we say, hey, you should be loving, but we say it in a really hateful way. Um, so, you know, what does it look like for us to be to be people who want the world to change, yes, but who are really willing to be humble enough to repent, which means to turn the other way and go, I am going to stop in my tracks, repent, and do something different. And will we be willing to change ourselves? Um, I uh, It made me think of this song that I sang a lot when I was growing up. I grew up Catholic, and um, which taught me so much scripture. And I just, you know, the amount of things that you... If any of you grew up in that same tradition, just like so much scripture and the things that we would recite and do are just ingrained really deeply in me. And anyway, they pop up in me often. Something about that hiding scripture in your heart thing. I don't know, something to that. Um, but the song that came up is is this old, maybe it's a hymn, but it says, May there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Is the chorus. Um you know, I just dug around in my Spotify looking for a really good version of it. And uh, I don't really have anything to offer you. But if that resonates with you, maybe if you remember that song too, maybe look it up. But the point is this. Is there, may there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. And then they say, let this be the moment now. With every step I take, would this be my solemn vow? To take each moment and live each moment in peace eternally let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. So profound. I go like, you don't just go, let there be peace on earth and like send it out there, like good vibes into the cosmos as much as saying, let it begin with me. Let this be my vow, my personal commitment to be let there be peace on earth and that it would begin with me. Um, it makes, it makes me think of that verse. It's Romans 12, 18. And it says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone. Oh, that's an intense verse. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone. (laughs) Could you say that right now? Are you at peace with everyone? As far as it depends on you and as much as you are capable, are you at peace with everyone? That is a really intense commandment. Thanks, Paul, in Romans 12. Um, And so then I would say this. This is Psalm 139.23. This is a great prayer, always, but particularly in in this topic. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We should memorize that and pray it maybe every day. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Like, not, is there any offensive way in the world? Is there something, you know, is there something you want me to like point at and fix or, you know, put shame and judgment upon? Not, no, Lord, is there any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting? It takes that idea of just trying to find wrongdoing and turning it all inside and going, is there an offensive way in me? What a prayer. 
would be be bold enough to pray that. Um, and the last thing I want to read to you is just this, there's in back in Romans 12, there's just this like splattering of good advice. It's just good advice. Um, really hard advice. But um, during the pandemic, when we were in lockdown, this is one of the things that I just put, I just prayed it every day. I wrote it in my journal. It's one of the things I prayed every day. And it kind of helped set my rudder straight, I think. Helped me remember some things that were really um, important in the midst of things feeling really upside down and confusing. So I just want to read this to you. Starts Romans 12, 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Skip down a few verses and it, it closes with this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Oh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If we are ever going to do that, if we are not going to be overcome by evil in this era of the planet, it is going to be because, because we are letting it really begin with us. Though we're searching our heart. We're going, God, may it begin with me. So, Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you help us to search our heart and where things need to begin with us that we would be the change that we want to see in the world? Help us, Lord. Give us wisdom. Give us humility that we might see ourselves as we really are and how we show up in the world. Holy Spirit, we ask for your mercy to be upon us anew today and that you would help us to live in the high calling that you call us to and that if it's possible as much as it depends on me that I would be at peace with everyone Holy Spirit help us in Jesus name amen hey if you're still here, I just wanted to hop on and say, thank you. Thanks for listening. Um, <laughs> I just want to give you like a congratulations, some sort of award or, or button that you could wear that's like, I made it the whole way through the pile. Or maybe like a sticker, you know, like, you know, when you get the, your I voted sticker that you could wear so proudly, you deserve a sticker if you made it all the way through all of those various thoughts. And, you know, some of those thoughts have been things that I've started chewing on and have become kind of even bigger thoughts in my head. So um, maybe that will be true of you too. Maybe some of those nuggets will become something that you end up chomping on for a while. And may the Holy Spirit use anything in every way that he possibly can. Bless his holy name.
he's so good at all of the things. So um, I just want to say thanks and blessings upon you. Peace be with you. See ya.